Uh, Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's been good to be back with you, and I bring you regards from many friends in the Livingston area, where I spoke Wednesday night for uh, five shuls came together for Yom Azimut and Yom Zikaron, and on Sunday at Congregation Ortara and Edison, where also a group of shuls and community have come together for an event. So. All of your uh, fans who are out there and clamoring for you. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it. A, 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 a way to get back on our good side after avoiding us for a couple of weeks. I like that. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you should have heard the speculation about why you were avoiding, and I obviously you weren't avoiding, it was scheduling conflicts, but why you were quote-unquote avoiding making public statements here in the last couple of weeks. People have an unbelievable imagination and really like to, you know, to, to make up news stories, frankly. <laughs> well, I think that uh, that creativity ought to be applied <laughs> <laughs> correctly, and it's purely uh, scheduling issues, and I've you know, been making statements and appearing in a lot of places, a lot of things. Uh, in the interim, but uh, meanwhile, your Pesach was spectacular. I hear, and you had a very meaningful trip to Eastern Prime Europe as well. The Prime experience was truly remarkable and wonderful. As in the past, it was uh, really a great yontiv, and I hope everyone had a great yontiv and many happy matzahs. You know, it's hard for a leader like you to speak out against the ostentation of uh, Pesach programs in our community. I'm all in favor of. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a proponent. Had a a feeling you fell on that side of the issue. (laughs) By the way, I do want to mention, I'm glad Malcolm uh, mentioned the Yomat Smut programs that he was part of. Uh, I wanted to mention yesterday we had an amazing Yom Smut celebration here. Listeners who haven't heard it yet or haven't participated by hearing it, uh, myself and Mayor Weingarten uh, on the air yesterday, please access later on the archive at jmnam.org. I think you will very much appreciate it. All right, we have an opportunity to get back into the news of the last couple of weeks. First of all, uh, it, was there, in fact, a, a missile fired on Stay Road yesterday? There was a missile fired. It was uh, not Hamas. Hamas denied it, and the Israelis seemed to indicate that it was not. Uh, it, it, whether it was an errant uh, misfire on the part of uh, an individual or something that you know can just go off, but it does indicate... Again, the level of activity that's going on along the Gaza border. We know that Iran has poured tens of millions of dollars through the Iran Revolutionary Guard into into uh, Gaza for uh, Pidge and now for Hamas. They've sort of reconciled, and it gives them access, Iran access, to Israel's southern border, as Hezbollah does to Israel's northern border. It also uh, gives them a base against uh, Egypt, and to uh, and to be able to heat things up whenever uh, they want. So the activity uh, of several kinds. One is the building of tunnels, which is where the money goes into that they get from uh, Iran, not to benefit the people. And they use the cement that the international community forced Israel to, to supply, even though they warned them and they said no. There would be markers; they would track it. And we know that it is going there. And we they could see sometimes the big trucks, earth-moving trucks that are. Uh, involved in the in the building of the tunnels, they also have miniaturized or small bulldozers and earth movers that they can uh, go into you know these holes and and to reopen and rebuild. So now those on tunnels their side of the border, but in order to come to the other side, how much more quickly can they be built now? 
I mean, not that you have an exact statistic, but I mean, I guess what used to take, you know, I, I assume weeks and months now takes days and weeks. Is that type of thing? They can weeks and they, first of all, you have the infrastructure. They've been working on it since the end of the war, but in this case, we're talking about them coming closer and closer to the border area. Israel has new technology, uh, sensors that can te- detect it, but it's not fully deployed and it's, it's not, uh, it's not perfect yet, but it, it is, um, an important step forward. Oh, that's what they mean by the underground Iron Dome, like that type of thing? That's exactly what they right. sensors that And why do I think that last year as well, on Yom Ha'atzmaud, maybe it was a coincidence, there was also some type of lone missile attack. Am I right that it's possible that this that this, this mistake of yesterday, whatever we want to call it, isolated incident, is because Israel was celebrating that day or, or not? It would otherwise be a big con- coincidence, right. I think, if, uh, if that weren't the case. And, the, um, you know, the fact that it wasn't followed up by anything else, is, is pretty much an indication that it's um, that it probably is a, an isolated event, but it's also a test. You know, they are building more and more short-range missiles with much heavier payloads because of Iron Dome intercepting the longer-range missiles. They are building uh, ones that would attack communities nearer to to the border, which of course has caused a lot of reaction. And they, those communities are putting up trees in order to block the view and hopefully. Uh, aid to the uh, to deter attacks on on the different communities, but it is uh, clear that the uh, that the Iranians are escalating the assistance and the Hamas, which by the way this week uh, received the visit of Palestinian Authority ministers and promptly put them under house arrest in a hotel in uh, in Gaza, and they eventually left without meeting anybody and. Palestinians living in Gaza came to to meet with them and I guess to talk about those who have family or other things in the other in the Yudon Shamron, uh, but were turned away and and uh, never got to see them. So this is uh, when they talk about the rapprochement, they talk about the Hamas and the PA working together, and that this was supposed to be the opening salvo and trying to reconcile. Uh, you, the answer was very quick and coming. Right. To, to us, uh, it always looks like there's more unity among the terrorists. Right. Sometimes to others, it looks like there's a lot of unity and there should be more in our community. Uh, but uh, sometimes from the outside, it appears that way. And yes, uh, we are encouraging all of us to continue this unified effort. Uh, but that is a topic for another day. Um, we, we, I, I, I promised too many people that we would uh, ask you to explain to us the Iran deal and, and this congressional involvement or uninvolvement that... That is so difficult sometimes to understand, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, is there going to be an Israeli government? Is there going to be a uh, a deal struck in the next few days? There will be a government by May 7th. May 8th is the deadline. It will be probably a limited government, not a unity government. That could happen later on, but that that is not what's going to happen now as far as I can see. It will it will be a 67-member uh, center-right government uh, with the parties that everybody's discussed. Now, it is possible that um, the, the, the tensions that have been written about could block it, which means that the president could turn to you know any member of Knesset, but uh, certainly first would be to Herzog, and the general assessment is that he cannot form uh, a 61-seat government. So Netanyahu... Uh, will work feverishly to get it done by uh, May 7th. And the most pronounced of those tensions is, which is the one that's getting the most publicity? Well, it's always over competition over who gets what seats. 
uh, about uh, certain positions, but the, the, the religious ministry, for instance, became an issue if, if uh, Derry got it versus uh, Bennett, and over some of the economic ministries, and the Prime Minister declared that we could would get um, the major ministries would would be held with him, and you saw that by Yehudi blasted the Prime Minister just yesterday that uh, he said, I think that we won't be smacked around and that there's no government without us, and they're all playing uh, their cards mm. because they want to leverage the best uh, the best seats and the best uh, uh, positions, those with the greatest clout in, in the sense that they have patronage and, you know, they need jobs for the people who supported them. Right. All right, many of us are familiar with the news story of a couple of weeks back when President Obama and Secretary Kerry announced the nuclear deal. Uh, but many of us are also confused about the involvement or uninvolvement or the dependence or, or undependence of Congress in this deal and if Congress actually has a role or not. We are getting mixed messages. Could you explain? That's exactly right. <laughs> it's mixed messages, huh? <laughs> and I don't know anybody, anybody who tells you that they understand all of this and know what's going on is lying. Wow. Because it is very confusing and it depends on your interpretation and if you look at each of the critical aspects we'll come to the role of congress in a second but if you look at each of the critical aspects of of the deal what was originally demanded in the u.n resolutions which said zero enrichment and we're talking about six thousand they can retain the other ones they don't have to put out the the enriched uranium to another country the dismantling of the facilities gone the iraq reactor Supposed to be made light, light of water, going to be dismantled. We find that uh, even Fordo, the underground facility, would be allowed to function on a limited basis, not enriching, but doing other things. But the fact is that if you leave it intact, regardless of what you're doing with it, it's going to, you can easily switch it back. And we know that you can tell when the Iranians are lying because their lips are moving, that the, they will cheat, they are cheating. Ali Heinen, who used to be the deputy head of the IEA inspector uh, at the International Atomic Energy Agency, said that if they're not lying now, it's the first time in 20 years that that's true. <laughs> we know that they have uh, other facilities and, uh, and can guarantee it. So what the IEA told me when we were in Vienna said it's not the places we know about that worry us. It's not what we don't know about those places that worry us. It's about the places we don't know about that mm-hmm. worries us. Mm-hmm. And the technology is not there. They don't have the manpower, et cetera, to do it. And we were supposed to be demanding unfettered access any time to every place, including military places. The Iran Revolutionary Guard says now, no, there will be absolutely no access to any military sites. Khamenei says we want immediate relief from the sanctions. The assessment of uh, even Secretary Muniz, who's the Secretary of Energy, who joined the negotiations and brought the technical expertise and uh, was praised for his role, he said it will take six months before Iran would be in a position to get sanctions relief, meaning to have progressed sufficiently in the steps they have to take. And yet we hear talk that $50 million sign-up bonus uh, out of the money that's being frozen could be the Europeans will do it and the United States won't it could be that the United States will say this is not part of the of the sanctions regime this was money that we froze and they can and there are different levels of sanctions you have the UN sanctions you have the congressional sanctions you have the administration sanctions has any of this changed yet like has any sanction been lifted has any money been transferred has any of this happened yet well there are the part of the joint deal the JPOA was that there would be some relief although 
the sanctions uh, remain in place, and the administration says that look, we, we it cost them more money than than the relief that was given. They were given uh, access. Remember, they were allowed also uh, car parts and well, things for the oil industry, and their economy shows it. Their economy ha- has increased. Fifty billion dollars being released. If in fact that would be the case, it would be like a thirty percent jump for their GDP. Their gross domestic product would have a profound impact. But most of all, would enable them to continue to to expand their regional uh, uh, drive for hegemony. Their efforts in Yemen, where they're spending all this money backing the Houthis, all their money they're spending in Sudan and other countries backing Assad. They're not going to put the money into the to benefit the people of Iran. That money is going to go to to continue their violations of human rights, their their backing of terrorist entities around the world, and mostly their drive for hegemony in the region, challenging Saudi Arabia, taking over Iraq, uh, taking over Beirut. And Khamenei said it: we, for the first time, control for Arab capitals. All right. Is there any way that the United States and or Israel or anyone else does have the technology, but we just don't know it or it's not made public, to identify those places we quote-unquote don't know about? Well, m- many times the information about the places that we read about and you do know about, Bordeaux, et cetera, came from dissidents inside Iran who gave the information. It wasn't intelligence, Israeli or American intelligence. Not even official spies, you mean? In some instances. And in other cases, it was, you know, satellite information, et cetera. Right. But Fordo is built underground. It's inside a mountain, so you can't tell what's, what's going on there. Parchin, which is the place where we believe the weaponization experimentation went on, uh, has been denied uh, to, the, to the IEA any access, and they have put six layers of concrete over it. Uh, they, you know, they try to cleanse the place. It didn't work. They took off the soil and because there's probably a lot of radiation uh, and evidence of radiation and the experimentation that went on there. So uh, are, are there, is it possible that there are places today that we don't know about? The answer is absolutely it is possible. If it's, is it, uh, it, do we have the technology now to discover them? Probably not. I asked the president, in fact, about this, and he said, well, right now the I, it is true what the IAEA told us, but we hope by then we will have additional technology and means to to uh, uh, uncover it, to, to, to display it. By the way, you met with the president. Does he explain in, in any more of an of a uh, understandable fashion the nature of this deal? Does he does he know the timetable? Is he able to convey you know what steps are going to be taken and when when it comes to the U.S. relationship and and everyone else's relationship with Iran? Um, I would say that the, because uh, it was off the record, I would say that the, um, his answer would be, look, we're negotiating it. We, we've just gotten the, the thing that we, we, so first we, at. first we announce the deal, then we negotiate it? Well, it's not a deal. It's a framework understanding, and right. you see the difference. Khamenei right away said the fact sheet that was put out, and, and Zarif rather said that the fact sheet that was put out is, is lie. America is spinning it. And the Russians uh, did say that the American version is closer, but others said no. It's the the Iranians uh, stuck by their guns, and subsequent statements would seem to indicate that that uh, some of the truth may lie closer to the to their position. But the Americans uh, put out a document. I don't know, thirteen hundred words, and the and they put out a document of two hundred eighty one words, <laughs> three hundred words. 
so the the negotiations now are going on will determine the length of the um, you know the the uh, carry out of the of the agreement what time frame we're talking about, what will be done in the first phase. What, what sanctions will be lifted? Of the, of the other side. And now it's complicated because you have Russia selling the S-300 right. anti-aircraft system. You have other things happening on the ground. And most that, that was a direct sale, Russia to Iran? Russia to Iran was originally in 2009. If you remember, this is a very effective, we say offensive, he says defensive weapon uh, that will, you know, put the, quote, all options on the table in jeopardy because it'll be much more difficult. It can be overcome. And Israel is getting, you know, the, is buying the F-35s, et cetera, which one could say could be linked to that. Uh, but it, it certainly complicates the situation, as do other things. Julie Bishop, the deputy, the foreign minister of Australia, was there, signed four or five agreements about intelligence sharing, other things. We know Europeans are in there. We know that there are negotiations going on all the time, the Chinese, the Russians. So that we're undermining the, the, the longer this delays, it's not that the status quo holds, it's that we're seeing further erosion all the time. And it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. We'll get to Congress, folks. Relax. We will get to it. I gotta ask you this, though. You just alluded to the meeting with, the, there were two meetings at the White House that got a lot of publicity over the last couple of weeks. One was a, a quote unquote Jewish leader meeting the other one was a quote unquote uh, presidential supporters uh, meeting were you at one or both of those no I was at the first one and it, it seems at the second one there were people from our community advocating for the uh, the veto proof power that or, or I should say the veto power that uh, that Israel has enjoyed from the United States at the United Nations be suspended do you know if that was actually a topic of conversation and a request from members of our community during that meeting? I do not know that. that uh, I do know that I raised it at the first meeting, and the president had made some comments about the reassessment and the, um, you know, the question of, of, you know, they need a reason for a veto and Netanyahu's position on two states, et cetera. And uh, I told him why I thought that there was a need for that and why that was, uh, you know, a, a critical uh, uh, juncture that the. And that it's not just how he views it. You got to think about how do how do the enemies of Israel, how does the, the other countries view it? If the United States backs off Israel at the United Nations, and that the consequences for the U.S. and for Israel, people did say things. You know, one one person in our meeting did say eighty percent of the American Jewish community supports the, the uh, Iran uh, deal, and I said to him, it's true. Eighty percent of American Jews support a deal with Iran. They support a good deal. The problem is that 75% see this as a bad deal, mm. and that the the content of this, where's the consistency? We were told that the breakout time was 12 to 13 months all along, 12 to 15 months. Now we're told it's two to three months. What happened? How did that happen? And then the president himself said that in a year, it will be zero breakout time. I said, there's something inconsistent, there's something wrong with this picture. Do you think it's inappropriate for leaders and support, even supporters of the president, but people who, who are there at the White House, uh, with the assumption they care about Israel and are there to discuss Israel, do you think it's inappropriate that in that forum they ask the president to reconsider the U.S. attitude toward Israel at the United Nations? Uh, you mean 
negatively or positively. No, negatively. We did ask them to reconsider it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I understand that. But when someone sits there, and again, the way the press painted it, it was as if they were demanding. That, and and as uh, a, I think that there were people, who, uh, some from J Street and others who were at both meetings, and uh, I did hear that report. Again, I wasn't there, so I can't say. And people didn't discuss the meetings because they were off the record. And uh, all I can say is that in the meeting uh, I attended, people made very clear points to the president. He had a bad cold and, you know, was sniffling all the time, so we sort of felt uh, it didn't uh, diminish the intensity of the exchanges that took place. Right. It's done respectfully, but it was done forcefully to, to raise the issues both regarding Iran and regarding the U.S.-Israel relationship. The fact that somebody says it, you know, at a meeting it, is... Um, is unfortunate because the president then gets the image that you know the Jews are split and the American Jewish community is split, when in fact that is not the case. I don't find it when when I go around. People are deeply concerned, uh, deeply upset. They're upset about the Iran deal and and not just Jews but non-Jews as well. Um, I, I, I just am outraged when someone can from our community can walk in and add advo- a lot of people would. Different views in that community. I know, but to advocate in, to, to advocate that in that forum, though, to advocate in that forum against Israel, it, it, to advocate for the quote reassessment, which will take the form, perhaps, of not vetoing a resolution uh, at the United Nations. I know, but it sounded like they weren't really arguing for a reassessment. They were arguing for a reassessment that would that would that would eliminate this this the the. Uh, uh, th- th- this veto power that Israel enjoys courtesy of the United States. Well, that is an issue that's on the table and which, as I said, we addressed. Uh, I, do not, I do not know what was said. I left right away for Poland from the meeting with the president, so I did not get a report about it. By the way, should I go to Eastern Europe or not? What would you say to me if we had a private conference? If we were sitting at Shalashtudis, you and I. A round-trip ticket or one? And I, thanks a lot. And I said to you, all right, you, you know my attitude. You know how I was raised in terms of the whole Eastern Europe thing. Do you think that me at this age already and in the, and in the position I'm fortunate to have, do you think it's time to go or not? Do I think you're old enough to do it? Yes. <laughs> do I think? Can't get a, a straight answer from you. From Absolutely. I, I don't, um, I mean, I have certain reservations, but I, I, again, I was there because I think each time I learned something new and I have benefited a lot. Uh, from it to understand how Jews live, not just how Jews died. Uh, you know, it also gives puts in perspective when you go to a place like Gare and you heard all the stories and uh, you come there and it's a little courtyard and the, um, you know, the way the Jews lived and you, you can still see some remnants of it in places as you travel around, uh, the, you know, the exaggerations. But at the same time, you go to Warsaw and one out of every three people in Warsaw before the war was a Jew. Right. Now, many of them were not necessarily observant, and there were other movements, And but you have opportunities to learn about it and to see it. And, and when you, many of the places are sanitized, you know, to go to Umstlugsvaz, you go to, which is the gathering places. But there's now a new museum in, in Warsaw, which is worthwhile seeing. It's, it's really very well done about the whole history uh, of the uh, of the Jewish people, especially the Jews of Poland. By the way, I know we're way off topic, and I got to do the Congress thing. But Toldot Yisrael has just released their new film, Air, Land, and Sea, all about Aliyah to Palestine after the First World War. It is remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. I mean, what people went through to get to Israel, 
And, you know, as we said yesterday, all we do is complain about the airline food. <laughs> what people went through to get to Israel at that time is just remarkable. I hope that you continue as we have to spread the word about that and all their incredible work. All right, Congress. So now that we've gotten to this point and we understand a little bit more about the deal and how it works and the framework and how it works, and we understand the presidential statements regarding it, what is the story with congressional involvement or uninvolvement in this deal? So it, it it's very complicated because there are different legal statuses. When if, you, if a treaty needs to have Senate approval, an agreement does not, and the president can cite numerous agreements reached by previous presidents that uh, were not approved by uh, the Congress. There was legislation that were, uh, in fact, a number of bills that um, would have set deadlines originally. Now, then, for the June uh, 30th deadline. Uh, for Congress to review the legislation, which is what the president did sign, the Corker-Menendez bill. But it, it doesn't have the effect that some people think in terms of actually vetoing, giving them veto. They have a right to review. They have a right to introduce new sanctions. The president can veto those sanctions. The president can get waiver on those sanctions. He, he argues that this is a violation of presidential prerogative and a violation of the Constitution if the Congress goes too far, that the president's role is to negotiate those deals and the argument that we also support is that congress should have the right to review it's the voice of the people and uh, th- this is uh, something of, of such consequence this is not you know a farm deal this is something that affects the security of america for generations to come but most immediately now it affects our allies it affects so many things at a time when iran is more and more aggressive and uh, they the details are, are really critical here. And Congress has, by and large, been left out of the negotiations. It's being done by State Department and people in the White House. And so well, people are confused about it because it is confusing and because the, there's no yes or no answer to these things. I mean, we, we have people studying it in detail in order to understand exactly what the ramifications of every option are in terms of how this is, is dealt with. Congress, there are 50 uh, amendments that were being introduced to, to this legislation. There are many bills and other things that are being proposed. Many of them have been dropped already. Uh, some of them are, are going to proceed. But none of them will essentially create a veto. What they can do is to to ask for the, the right to review it and to be able to go to the American people about it. Right. And then they can take certain action. question is, do you have a veto-proof majority? I know a lot of people were confused. What was the why 67 votes? What, what's the difference? 61 votes get a majority, so it would pass it. 51. If the president vetoes it, you need 67 votes, which means you needed more Democrats to come over to join the Republican majority to be able to override a presidential veto of legislation they passed. Right, 51 versus 67, right? No, 61 versus. 61. It's 61. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even realize that. So it's not a regular majority. Okay. Um, so when people are encouraging everybody out there to take action and, and connect with certain senators, 
it sounds like there's really no reason to do it. No, there is absolutely every reason. I just told you that three votes, two votes can make all the difference in the world. No, I understand, but the, but even if that would pass, even if that, even if that, let, let, let's say that legislation would go through, what would we gain from it? We'd gain that that the American people have a right, or that or that the the United States uh, uh, Congress or administration has to take the issue to the American no, no, people. It's just an also affects the lifting of sanctions and uh, and Congress's uh, role in it. So it would have a direct effect. It would, ha- yes, absolutely. So, well, there are, as I said, there are different bills, different right. pieces of legislation, but it definitely has, and it's very critical that people continue to make their voice heard to show that we that we are really interested. You saw the polls; a third of the American people think we're losing the war to terrorists. Eighty-six yeah. percent think radical Islam is is a threat to our security. The vast majority of the American people do not like this deal with Iran, and and a very significant percentage would even go for military option at this point. They understand it. They see that the the um, they have come to understand what the threat that's posed by Iran for for the United States, aside from Israel, aside from the other countries in the region. And you saw how the Arab states formed this joint task force, which I mentioned even before. Uh, we had the break for for Pesach about what the significance of that would be, and it, it wasn't public at that time. Uh, I certainly talked for many, many, many months about Yemen. Now everybody is is looking at it. We have warships sailing there from the United States, right? Ten ships. You got the the Iranians with seven ships on the way there. You have uh, the Saudis bombing there. You have the threat to take over Baba Mandabi. You have Al Qaeda taking over a new base uh, inside Yemen. It's really critical. All these things are important, and if we we have to send a message that we're watching and that we're demanding that the appropriate action be taken. You cannot trust Iran. We're not dealing with a democracy that's negotiating and maybe has some difference with us. Every aspect of this is really vital, and what we have seen is that the red lines keep getting erased or turning pink, and that's exactly what the Iranians probe for. They look for weakness, and they exploit it. They keep putting down hard-line positions, and they say, oh, you see, it's not us, but we have the IRGC to worry about. We have to, to do it. Well, let the president be able to say, look, I have a Congress. I can't just do what you want because I have Congress you know, breathing down my neck, and they will not allow it. So it's very important, the message that is sent. Uh, the... Um activity the harassment that's going on on the temple mount has become uh, outrageous and it seems from the videos that we see that the israeli army and police can do very little about it or want to do very little about it obviously you know why because an image is going to go around the world of them uh, you know retaliating or reacting against a child or a woman whoever's in their face uh what can be done about what's happening up there well i think once a government is formed and the uh you have police you have others who are uh, given orders and and given the mandate to to address it. Look, every every inch that is given on this is only going to worsen the situation because they will take advantage of it. You have women now up there uh, harassing and protesting because they know that nothing will be done to them. Uh, on Harazetim, we see also an escalation of of some of the violence that it stopped because there isn't uh, right now. You don't even have ministers who are o- overseeing it. But I hope that once the government is formed, these issues will be given the proper attention and the steps that will be taken to to stop, A, the harassment and the violence that goes on, but B, to assert the appropriate role for Israel. These are our most sacred places. 
And um, who's behind it? Because yesterday Mayor Weingarten mentioned that he had heard that uh, the Jordanians and others are actually funding this effort, that it's an organized effort, and one where they want to make sure that at any moment that a Jew is up there in the Temple Mount, they are being attacked. I don't know that Jordan would be behind it. Jordan is given theoretical control, so is the King of Morocco, has supposed to have some say to King of Saudi Arabia, all the descendants of uh, Muhammad. Uh, But the WAC... Is, is controlled by Jordan. Jordan pays for a lot of the upkeep and repairs there. I, I don't think there are people in Jordan who do want to see this, but, but the PA has been much more active in declaring Al-Aqsa's under siege, which they know evokes an immediate response, and, and you get riots, you get demonstrations. To the point where they would pay women and kids to do this? That where they would uh, assign people to do it, and you could also, it can come easily from a lot of the Islamist groups who we know were inv- are involved in this, and that's why it's, it's not, it wouldn't be Jordan likely. But you can have, and you do have within the government of Jordan, people who are Muslim Brotherhood-oriented and uh, who, who could be, uh, uh, who play a role. But the king has generally uh, tried to be a, a assertive in, in, in containing situations, and the Israelis, and they work together. Um, Everybody, you know, has the excuse that they that they have to let the people let off steam and that we can't let the violations, etc., uh, take place. Is Israel selling weapons to the Ukraine? Could they? Yes. Are no, they? are they? I don't think so. Now, would they? Uh, I, I have my doubts. And uh, finally, speaking of, uh, and then I brought that up, of course, because uh, Vladimir Putin had warned Israel not to. Obviously suspecting they would. Uh, Vladimir Slaypak passed away. Vladimir Slaypak, one of the most well-known uh, refuseniks in the USSR, for those who remember the era of uh, fighting for Soviet Jewry. His funeral takes place this coming Sunday at 1 p.m. at the Plaza Memorial Chapel at 91st Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Manhattan. Got a note from Glenn Richter this morning encouraging everybody in our audience uh, who was involved in the movement. Many people knew him. Uh, they should go to the funeral and pay a final tribute to him. Again, that's at the Plaza Memorial Chapel, 1 o'clock this coming Sunday. And he writes that his apartment, meaning Slapeback's apartment, became the Grand Central Station on Gorky Street in downtown Moscow for thousands of refuseniks and Western visitors. I am sure you were in that apartment, Malcolm. Could you give us, I know you don't always like to speak publicly about the episodes from those years, but could you give us something to paint a picture of what it was like in that area, in that apartment in Moscow in those days? Well, first of all, you could hardly fit in there. And they would, the dissidents would come together, the Jewish uh, movement would come together, and Slepak uh, was a longtime leader, he was a longtime refusenik. Uh, he had lived in Israel he, he, uh, until recently. Uh, I think three years ago he, he moved here to New York. Um, he, he's, his apartment became, and there were a couple of places, but I think his was primary, a place where people would come together and to talk, to discuss, and they knew that they were under scrutiny. They knew that they were jeopardizing themselves, but this was the nature of the movement, which people have forgotten, and young people today don't know anything about, and it's very regrettable. Uh, there are some films about the this history of the Soviet Jewry movement, which I hope people, schools especially, will insist that the, the kids get to see it, because when I mention things to them today, <laughs> not only do they not know any of the names, including Sharansky, they have no idea about what the movement did and how uh, Jews abroad, Jews especially in the United States, but everywhere around the world mobilized, and how working together with Jews who put their lives on the line were able to turn the Iron Curtain into Venetian blind. They made the Soviet, the 
perestroika and and glasnost possible and i think that the the um you know the failure to to educate young people about it about that era about how all of these uh, this million people got out as an inspiration for what you can do and how you can accomplish things, especially at a time when we see people feel helpless in view of Iran, helpless in view of the other things. We are not helpless at all. And, you, you, you know, when they saw the parade like this weekend, the military parade in Iran with the death to Israel and death to America on the missiles, and you hear Khamenei say not only that, but death to Jews as well. And as I said to the president, we take the threats of dictators seriously. They mean it. And, and in the past, Hitler told us everything, and we didn't take it seriously. Stalin told us what he was going to do. We have to take it seriously. And people can't feel that they're not efficacious, that they can't make a difference. You can against even the worst dictatorships. You can make a difference when people mobilize, when people stand together. We have to have the access, the unity in the community. I hope the government of Israel will represent that kind of unity so they can act decisively on the many issues, external, internal. We see a world in uproar. The, the changes took place just in the in these last couple of weeks that we weren't on. Uh, it's encyclopedias. It's not something you can do in 40 minutes, and it's very frustrating because each of these issues deserves so much attention because they're going to have long-term ramifications. Yeah, no question. Well, we'll continue to catch up next week, please, God. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update Fridays here at JM in the AM.